This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Fun weekend for investors, getting to hear from one of, if not the most respected investor of our time. And uh, we're talking about Warren Buffett. He came out with his annual letter to shareholders and investors. Variety of topics. Let's get a roundup with uh, Kat Chaglinski. She is U.S. finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the Buffett Beat, and she joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about this the, the letter. Um, everybody looks forward to it. It's usually a pretty lengthy letter, and Warren Buffett talks about his investments and talks about a variety of things. Totally. And this year, it was a little shorter than normal, so I think people, it kind of surprised people a bit. But uh, I think the main gist we were getting from this newsletter, uh, this letter, is, you know, be patient. I think uh, Buffett took us through kind of, you know, it was a hard year for his deal making. He called it a drought. And he said, you know, businesses were reaching all time highs on price, prices. And with kind of the extraordinarily cheap debt available, it was just really hard for him to find some deals that would have made sense for Berkshire. It's the best year in increase in book value, which is the, the number that he says is most important. Well, it's one of the numbers he says is most important. The best increase in book value of this company, this giant company, has seen in 20 years with a 23% increase. Sorry, a 23% increase in book value, 22% interest in the stock price, which we already knew about. Uh, that's a remarkable year for a company this big. The kind of year that he said we wouldn't see anymore, and we keep seeing. We have to think a little bit about tax reform. Um, part of that was driven by he got $29 billion uh, benefit into his earnings because of tax reform. That's a big benefit. Um, yes, <laughs> quite, the quite the sum. Um, it's interesting going into this cat that last week we were saying, oh, maybe we'll hear about a successor uh, and a few other things. What didn't he put in the newsletter that was noticeably missing? I think we all want, you know, more hints about succession. He did praise Ajit Jain and Greg Abel in their new roles as vice chairman, and I, you know, that was that was great. But I don't but he think he praises it really... them every yes. letter. Jane it didn't in, really give Jane us Jane in particular has gotten a lot of praise over the years. Totally. So it was just kind of it was lacking in terms of like any more news about what their new roles actually entail and mean for the future of Berkshire. What about in terms of the healthcare? Um, triumvirate, if you will, between J.P. Morgan, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. He actually steered clear of that in the mm -hmm. whole letter, which I think was a little shocking, too. Um, but he talked about it this morning, and he, you know, he mentioned... He's been doing interviews, correct? Definitely. He's been doing interviews, and he mentioned in one of them that, um, it, you know, he's it's a problem he really wants to tackle. I mean, it's hugely expensive, and they're looking to do more than just sort of shave off 3%, 4% in cost, you know, because you can get that through some negotiating power, he said. And um, I think it was it was an interesting reminder of they're really going for it with this. They're along a lot of um, tax-sensitive, well, housing-related companies, right, with Clayton Homes and um, uh, PFJ and other, other companies that, that need people to be willing to buy homes, particularly in a low end with, with the mobile home stuff. Uh, any sense of, of what that business means to them with tax reform, changing the way people can uh, expense uh, uh, their payments for such homes? Those businesses did pretty well um, yeah. in the fourth quarter. It'll be interesting, yeah, to see how it actually plays out. Um, again, a lot of those businesses are driven by kind of the broader economy, how you know that's feeling. He's still bullish on that. He said, I think the Amer uh, American economic soil remains fertile. So I think uh, he still has an optimistic look. 
What about technology? What did he say? Because, right, we've seen um, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, and those who work for him, they've been moving into some more of those big tech names, including things like Apple. He, he talked today a little bit about it. Um, um, Apple has been one of his biggest purchases over the past year. Yeah. It's it's fascinating because you're going from IBM, kind of this old school mm-hmm. kind of technology giant. Um, he said, you know, that was kind of a mistake that he made. And now um, now he's going into Apple. It'll, it's interesting whether it's, you know, fully a um, Buffett kind of move or, you know, how much his deputies are kind of playing into that. Berkshire is the fourth largest shareholder. And um, second, Apple. and Wells Fargo is only the only other holding it has is bigger, right? Only yeah. slightly bigger. Um, actually, by market value now, it might be um a little bit more Apple. Yeah, hundred and sixty nine million dollars. Yeah, that <laughs> that's what it looks like. Um, uh, in the letter, in the letter, it said it was a twenty eight billion dollar holding, and in the letter, it said that Wells Fargo is a twenty nine billion. Oh, I'm sorry, hundred sixty nine million shares. Yeah, yeah. Right, but the price the price is adjusted. I, and I put out a tweet. You can fact check me if you or maybe you don't know. I mean, to stump the band. Uh, that that in his IBM holding, that he actually made money in that holding. Uh, uh, that at least according to data on the Bloomberg terminal, that he may have made money in that holding, uh, an eight percent profit in IBM, even though earnings fell sixty four percent during the time that he held the stock. Imagine a company whose earnings go down, I'm referring to net income, not earnings per share. I know IBM will be calling me in a second. Uh, the net income, which is the actual profit of the company, declined 64% during Buffett's time holding, and it was still up 8%. I mean, he's, you know, it, it worked out. I don't think it was the worst, you know, kind of uh, mistake he made, and uh, it worked out for him. Now he's just kind of a, he holds $2 million, uh, two million shares of IBM, so mm-hmm. it's kind of now on the back burner for... He also, in his interviews this morning, right, talked a little bit about Teva, right, the the generic uh, pharmaceutical maker, which has not had a good couple of years um, and going through lots of changes and trying to figure things out, um, but they owned it. Yeah, they they took a stake in the fourth quarter, uh, according to some regulatory they own filings. It, right? <laughs> yeah, and what was interesting this morning though is uh, Buffett said, "Hey, that wasn't me." He um, he. You know, it's important to remember there's three guys, at least at Berkshire, picking stocks. It's him, Todd Combs, and Ted Weschler. So it's kind of interesting. We don't know which of um, the other two might have been doing it or if it was both of them. Um, but that'll be something to keep an eye out for. I love that. Hey, hey, it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> Options. Uh, they've they've, they've got some, had some derivative contracts that seem to go against everything that Warren Buffett says he believes in. But he's writing some options because he thinks that the, that all the people's bets are stupid. What do we know? What's the update there? Um, those are actually declining. So um, he's starting to kind of wind some of those down, which is interesting. Um, in the letter, though, I'm I'm always fascinated by his comments on equities versus bonds. He right. he was very pro-equity and railed against bonds and how it's so hard to make a return and you shouldn't really think that they're risk-free. But he's not been, he wasn't as upbeat as he has been like by America, right? We didn't see that necessarily in the tone. Yeah, well, because he, he steered clear about a lot of these issues. We didn't hear much about politics. We didn't hear much. We heard a couple comments about kind of the economy. But on the rest of it, it was kind of silent. Always good, though, to hear what he has to say and check in. Um, Kat, thank you. Appreciate it. Kat Jaglinski, she is U.S. finance reporter at Bloomberg News. You can check her out on Twitter, and you can check her out at Bloomberg.com. Joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You should play that for every guest, don't you think? It's perfect for a business show. Well, as we look at these uh, markets and the cost of stocks in particular in these markets right now, uh, uh, it's a concern for a lot of investors trying to figure out where value exists uh, because the prices you pay 
what do they say? Uh, value is what you get. The price is what you pay. <laughs> I like that. No, Abed yeah. is founded yeah. right, like right now. The founder, CIO at Centerstone Investors, uh, right here in 1130 Studios in New York. Good to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Corey. Um, uh, this market, you know, Warren Buffett is always a buyer, so he's always complaining about prices, uh, <laughs> except uh, after uh, things get really ugly. What are you saying, and, 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 and where are you seeing it? Well, you know, there's that, um, I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, stocks went down a couple of days ago. <laughs> we do remember. And uh, it, it, was, it was fun while it lasted. We were able to put a little bit of our cash to work. But it's been, as you can imagine, I mean, a, the 10% decline, all it really did was took, take us back one month, right? So nothing really changed with that correction. You put some money to we work. Did, we did. A little yeah, bit? A little bit. 1%, maybe 1.5%. Okay. And we have a lot of cash. We're sitting on roughly 25 So to why not more? Just not enough ha happen. We we do uh, we're value investors at Centerstone, and we do take a long term view of, of things. And so, um, our, our primary objective is to 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 uh, you know is absolute returns over over market cycle, and also to avoid uh, the permanent loss of capital. So we're really focused on risk management first and foremost. And and so you know some value did emerge, uh, particularly in very interest rate sensitive names. Um, and we did take some uh, take take some cash and put it to work. Like what? Um, I can't give you specific names. Oh, come on. Yes, for, you can. For, <laughs> okay. Unless, unless you we, won't, well, maybe, but you can. I can do can. this interview in jail next time if you want me to. But, <laughs> okay. Uh, no, it's not illegal. It's a full disclosure meeting. You can tell us whatever you want to. You can choose not to, but it's not illegal to actually tell us what's going on. Okay, so among the stocks you guys have liked, though, O'Reilly. You love O'Reilly Automotive. You guys have loved that in the past. We do. Uh, yeah, it's a relatively new holding for us. We bought um, last summer, there were several companies. Uh, that got hit while uh, Amazon, you know, basically due to this Amazon threat. You remember, of course, the Whole Foods kind of thing and how it affected grocery stores. And and but you know, it, they really it's like a steamroller. They went through different parts of the the economy, announced entry into, uh, like I said, groceries, but also industrial parts distribution. Um, in the case of O'Reilly, auto parts, you know, retail. Um, some of these businesses are very well insulated from um, from sort of the the threat of an Amazon type company. Um, and O'Reilly, uh, we find, is, is one of those. Um, it has a, a very strong market position with uh, its core customer base, which is really mechanics and garages. You know, these They can deliver auto parts to the garage within an hour. It's really difficult for any business to compete against that, much less than Amazon, which mm -hmm. really does maybe at the best uh, you know, next day delivery. So they're very well positioned. Um, I think that there's... Um, there's there's a plenty of uh, upside potential for O'Reilly in the long term. Early last year, went from like two fifty down to one eighty. Yes, look more attractive then because revenues actually were going up. Yeah, revenues were going up. Cash flows have been have been solid. Uh, they've been returning cash flow to us shareholders. Um, so you know, free cash flow important metric for you. Free cash flow is important, but what they do with the cash flow is is also important. So do they, you know, waste it on fr uh, frivolous acquisitions or options plans or, or what what have you, or do they Invest and do they have the opportunity to invest it? So a company like a Cisco that, in fact, actually has a lot of free cash flow but spends it buying back the shares they issue to buy companies is less interesting. You mean Cisco Systems? Cisco yes. Systems. Yeah, it's less interesting. Uh, although I have owned that in the past. I mean, there are there are moments when those businesses, uh, you know, price can over, sometimes overcome the 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 negative the mechanics parts. of free cash flow. Yeah. 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 If Amazon though did enter into the automotive sector in a big way, how does that? change the O'Reilly investment picture? Uh, well, they're already there. I mean, you know, you can get, uh, uh, it's it, when you go to O'Reilly, I mean, sometimes you also buy it like air freshener or a battery or what have you. A lot of that stuff can be delivered to your home. You don't need to go to O'Reilly for that. For the, um, you know, I mentioned half the business is the, is the mechanics. The other mm -hmm. half is, it's, it's 
people who like to work on their cars um, and where the car is off warranty and they, they, they can't afford to, you know, or maybe they, they're more price conscious or just enjoy working on their cars. Right. But then you're talking about, um, you know, uh, fil- not just oil filters, but maybe parts of the oil system, the, the you know, not just a spark plug, but maybe like a radiator, right. things like that. Very difficult to just overnight that to somebody. At O'Reilly, also, when you come come there with a problem, they have trained uh, people that can help you identify what the problem is and sell you the right part. I mean, I, I was trying to teach my daughters how to work the hardware store. <laughs> I say, here's what you do. You come and you talk to one of these guys in these red vests, and you say, I need one of those things you stick in the back of the thing. It kind of makes the toilet stop making that thing sound. Yeah. And you need those people. You can't do that on Amazon. No, you can't. The AI has not progressed <laughs> to the, <laughs> so far as to decipher what teenagers say, yeah, or think. Um, we're running out of time, and I know you had a couple of other names, but maybe you'll have to come back and talk to us about them That'd in the future. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Not worried about the environment, though? Or do you think things are going to get cheaper again? You know, um, we are, are operating... Just quickly. Mantra is basically just assume something is going to go wrong, and that's why we have cash. That's why we're, so we're not always, quote-unquote, worried, but we're always ready. All right, good to check in with you. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Abe Deshpande. He is founder, chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York City. Oh, I love trash. We did it. I guessed it right. (laughs) I love it, Oscar. From Sesame Street. Coventa, though, is the company working with other companies and communities to find sustainable solutions to waste management. Let's talk about the business. Steve Jones is president and CEO at the Waste Energy Plant Operator, Coventa Holding Corporation, based in Morristown, New Jersey, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Monday. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate it. Tell us exactly what you guys do. So we're the world's leader in uh, energy from waste, so we operate about 40 plants uh, around the energy world. Energy from waste. Energy from waste, right. So we take in uh, waste from a number of different sources, primarily from residential waste, process 20 million tons a year, produce renewable power, and we also reclaim a lot of metal, which we can talk about. It's fascinating how much metal comes through the waste stream. Is all waste, or can all waste be converted into energy in a profitable way? Yes. Um, th- there's some waste that you don't want to take through an energy from waste plant. Um, because nuclear. you want to be environmental, well, nuclear waste, right? So there's there's certain types of waste that, from an environmental standpoint, you don't want to take through that combustion process. Right. But uh, most waste can go through the combustion process. And think about this. There's a lot of uh, energy that went into making all the things that we then throw away. And so reclaiming the British thermal unit, so the BTUs from that waste, uh, is a better alternative than taking that waste burrowing into the surface of the earth. Um, it decomposes over the next 50 to 100 years. Um, it produces methane. Methane's about 30 times worse than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. And so um, the view of a lot of countries, not so much the U.S., but a lot of countries, is that it's better to take that, uh, that waste, reclaim the BTUs, rather than putting it in the earth and having the methane gas be produced. And here, what's, what's the different approach? So it's interesting. In the U.S., uh, a number of these plants were built uh, back in the 80s to mid-90s. Um, but the U.S. is blessed with two things that impact new energy from waste plants here in the U.S. The first is we have a lot of land. And so countries that have uh, smaller footprints and think about any island nations will more quickly get to the point where they want to use their land for things other than landfills. And then secondly, uh, you have to pay for the capital in these plants. And uh one of the revenue streams is power, and so we're blessed by a lot of natural gas here in the U.S., and so our power prices are low. So if you think about the, we get we get paid for three streams associated with the, these plants. We get paid for the 
waste that we take in, mm -hmm. the renewable power that we produce, and the metals. So some combination of those three revenue streams need to be um, robust enough in order to pay for the capital associated so with how these quick, plants. So how quickly does a plant pay for itself then? Uh, about about eight years. Okay. Um, if you look, we just built a new plant in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, the, the returns on a plant like that will be uh, mid-teens, so good returns. If you look at um, uh, rates of return, internal rates of return around the world, uh, that plant costs about 500 million euros, so these are expensive plants. Uh, but if you look out over you know 10 years or so, uh, you'll be able to so create after ten years, and that's across the capital. That's not that's not so bad. Yeah. Um, so we tease this by saying, you know, we're going to talk about. Well, I, Carol wasn't in the room when I did it. But I said uh, many people accuse liberals of looking at the Trump administration and saying it's garbage. We're going to talk about garbage under the Trump administration. There you go. <laughs> uh, what? How has this uh, uh, in, uh, regulatory environment uh, affected your business? Uh, it's interesting. I got a question about this recently, whether it was President Obama or President Trump. It really hasn't impacted our business to a great extent. A lot of these decisions are made at the municipal level, mm -hmm. um, and these are critical infrastructure projects, but most of these types of projects, just like wastewater treatment or um, providing water to people, is, is made at a, at a more local level. And so... Um, if but if you, there's less money, let's let's see if there's less money coming from the federal government for whatever projects, and if municipalities and states, yeah. right, that yeah. could certainly impact As you municipalities, guys. Municipalities um, lose some funding that could that could have an impact. But the one thing uh, you see uh, in, in a lot of cases is that these municipalities are starting to look out longer term now to figure out what their waste strategy is going to be. Um, so if you look at places like um, Long uh, Long Beach. Island, um, Long Beach uh, Island in New Jersey, off the coast. Yeah, if you, if you well, beautiful uh, vacation spot, yeah, nice place, sandy beaches, warm yeah, water. Yeah, and you look at these places. No, you're talking about Ireland, aren't you? No, no, I'm talking Island. about the oh. U.S. Yeah, oh, you are. Okay. Yeah, I'll you know talk about well. Ireland in a second. But if you look at places like Honolulu, for example, places where it's difficult to uh, get rid of the waste, um, they'll more quickly go to uh, energy from waste as uh, as the preferred way to dispose waste in these communities. Now, you guys uh, cite uh, the Federal Power Act as being important to your business uh, and exempt under the Federal Power Act that you received. Explain to me what that is and how it, you think it might change in the Trump administration. Uh, actually, uh, this business really is driven not so much by the Federal Power Act. There's you know, opportunities as regulations change to get more for the power that we produce. It's really driven, most of our business is driven by the waste industry. Um, and in the U.S., it's a great time to be a waste company. If you talk with waste management or waste connections, um, right. waste pricing, particularly in the Northeast, is getting tighter. Uh, as uh, more and more landfills are, are shutting down. And that tends to be, now let's pivot to Ireland. One of the uh, opportunities we had in Ireland was our, the Irish uh, were running out of landfills. And mm -hmm. so uh, hmm. they were starting to have to um, export their waste to the European continent. Uh, and a lot of countries like to take care of their own waste. And uh, the, uh, the facility we just brought on stream in Ireland in October uh, now that it's on stream, takes about 40% of the waste uh, in all of Ireland. Well, let me just, I just facility. want to follow up with what I said before about the Federal Power because sure. in your 10K, you guys say, if you lose existing exemptions in the Federal Power Act, the economics and operations of our projects could be adversely affected. Is yeah, that not the case? or it, that ha That'll have some impact yeah. on our business. But two-thirds of our revenues come from the waste side of our business. Right. Uh, back in the day when these plants were built, two-thirds of revenues came from the power side of the business. So it really has changed. 
It has changed yeah. a lot over the last uh, 10, 15 how, years. How much, Steve, too, is part of kind of this ESG wave, environmental social governance? And you also have people, you know, well-known investors saying, I want to look at what these companies are doing. How is that maybe benefiting you? Just got about 30 seconds. Uh, that benefit, benefits us a lot. Um, if you look at waste um, and folks that are looking for um, companies that are looking for points from the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, uh, those types of companies and those types of investors uh, realize that the disposal of energy from waste is a lot more sustainable than utilizing a landfill. One thing we didn't get to ask you, and i got to ask you to be quick, um, your stock was under pressure, mm -hmm. earnings miss. What can you tell investors? Uh, actually, it wasn't an earnings miss. It was some concern about our free, or earnings below consensus. free cash flow generation. Uh, and one of the things I've told investors is that we set our free cash, we set, set our dividend policy uh, so that it's sustainable over the long term. And we signed a deal last year that gives us visibility into free cash flow out over the next several years okay. where we basically are doubling free cash flow. Steve Jones, President and CEO of Covanta Holding on Bloomberg. I'm fascinated by this story. Uh, Xi Jinping's decision to cast aside China's presidential term limits is stoking concerns. He also intends to shun international rules on trade and finance, even as he champions them on the world stage. Let's try and make some sense of this. Max Baucus is back with us, former U.S. Senator, former U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama, also former Democratic Senator, as I mentioned, from the state of Montana. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Um, Ambassador, nice to have you back with us. I read this this morning and I thought, hmm, this is pretty interesting and I think pretty significant. Tell me your assessment of it. Well, Carol, it is significant, although we saw this coming. Um, yeah. He is slowly amassing power. Um, he is um, using the anti-corruption campaign to purge um, potential opponents and somebody that might challenge him. Um, although I might say that the people in China are very happy with his anti-corruption campaign because the people know there's a lot of corruption in the, in the country. Uh, but um, he put in the Constitution a little while back uh, his thought, it's she thought, which in effect made him the main man in China. And uh, so that uh, eliminating the term limit here is, is a bit redundant, but it does um, solidify his, his position. But he's, he's obviously um, in the man in China, and it, it enables him and the country to, to move in their judgment even more quickly uh, to become a major political, military, and economic power. Well, I talked. I mean, I had a, a well-known Wall Street investor uh, uh, dinner with him about a year, man, two years ago, and he said, "Watch this guy. This guy wants to be Mao. Does he want to be Mao Zedong?" Well, he, I think he does in the sense that he wants to be uh, the leader, and that's already happened. He, he, the terms ascribed to him are, are, are much more significant than they are to his predecessors, Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao, or even uh, Deng Xiaoping. Um, he's called in China now as the great leader, as was Mao. I think that's really what he wants to be. But more important, uh, he wants to enshrine communist socialism in the system in China, as well as help lead China into this new era, the China dream, where China is, is, is ascending quite quickly. Right. So what, what does this mean on a, on a foreign stage, on a global stage, by him doing this? Because, yep, it's great that he's cracking down on corruption. People see that. But he's also 
cracking down on, you know, less access to the Internet, really kind of controlling the message um, for the domestic homeland. That's right. Um, he's using two major tools uh, to keep the people under control, if you will. One is to keep them happy. That is uh, help boost incomes, address air and water pollution, uh, food safety, uh, health care, and so forth. Help, help people uh, achieve the, uh, the, the quality of life that they want. But second, he is cracking down on, on civil society and individual freedoms so, we have, so that there's more control. It's a very controlling country. Um, so much now is surveilled. I mean, there are virtually cameras on most every corner in Beijing. And with soon facial recognition. So on the one hand, he's trying to keep people happy with jobs. On the other hand, he's, he's trying to control them. Well, it's interesting, too. One of the other fascinating stories I found um, that I thought last week about China buying into Daimler-Benz. Like, I, I, it's just kind of interesting, right? Embrace capitalism to a certain extent, um, particularly if it'll help the home market or help them control an industry, right? Because they're made in China 2025, the One Belt, One Road initiative. They're really doing things to become this incredible economic powerhouse and platform, more so than even that they are today. Well, I think that's the goal, no question. Um, they, they're buying uh, technologies they think are help propel them in the future. Daimler Benz, you know, maybe electrical vehicle technology that they maybe even produced in China. There's no question. And that's just one example. It really means that uh, we in the West have to first recognize that, understand what they're doing. Do we? Sec- Do we? I don't, I don't know, but I, <laughs> it gets to my second point, which is once we tend to understand what's going on, we've got to figure out how we handle it. What do we do about it? I think this is the major challenge that our country is going to be facing in the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That is the, the China-U.S. relationship. Are we laying the groundwork that's going to set us in the right policy direction, whatever that might be, in terms of dealing with China? Well, it's up to us. You know, it's an old mm-hmm. Bobo cartoon. We've got the enemy, and he is us. <laughs> mm-hmm. are, are we going to do what we need to do? And it's, it's, I hope so, but we have to work at it, those of us who care. And those of us who care have to help explain what we think is going on, at least start the, the discussion at a much deeper level than it's been thus far. Uh, do you think that our current uh, government is, is, is doing that or ready to do that? I mean, China certainly has been a focus of, of President Trump. No, I don't think we have, to be honest. I think our country really has not had a, a coherent, comprehensive China policy. We have in the past with respect to Russia, uh, maybe even Iran, but not with respect to China. I think we Americans are a bit buffaloed by China. It's way over there, several thousand miles away, or more than a thousand miles away, mm-hmm. different culture, long, you know, all that. And, it's just and we don't know quite what to do about China. China is 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 going very fast. And, you know, frankly, I care a lot about the relationship. We all do at U.S. China. I want it to work. I want the gears to mesh, not to grind. Um, this is not a zero sum game where it's the United States wins, China loses, or China wins, U.S. loses. It should be an approach where we're working together. But. That means we're going to have to stand up and say no to China right. uh, where it's appropriate, because I tell you, otherwise China's going to keep going until they're checked either externally or internally, and yep. it's up to us to do something about that. All right, we got to run. Thank you so much. Former U.S. Senator and U.S. Ambassador to China, Max Bach, is joining us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You 
moved like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your movers and shakers on this Monday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser, along with Corey Johnson, both of us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Uh, checking out the S&P 500, 383 names in the index are higher today, 118 lower, four unchanged. I thought I'd take a look at Teva Pharmaceutical, because we know uh, Warren Buffett had um, some thoughts or some comments on that. He said... He um, like, oh, well, <laughs> Said he wasn't personally involved in the firm's decision to buy a stake Ooh. in Teva. Uh, Teva sh- <laughs> it's kind of funny. I didn't do it. It's like growing up. I had six brothers and sisters. Be like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. <laughs> I didn't break it. <laughs> uh, shares of Teva are down two tenths of breaks, <laughs> exactly. We had the. We would be like, who did it? And we'd be like, the who guy? Who did it? Who yeah, did I've it? I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that in play. Two down two tenths of a percent today at twenty dollars a share. Shares of Teva are. What are they doing? Uh, they're actually up about 5.5% so far this year. But nonetheless, Warren Buffett uh, saying the investment uh, by Berkshire Hathaway in Teva was not his idea. Uh, in the wake of the volatility um, a blow up of the first week of February or you know, February, the, the first full week of February, yeah. um, stocks melted down. Volatility, of course, as we know, went through the roof. Uh, the XIV collapsed in a, in, in a financial uh, disaster, the 95% loss for most holders. Um, and and then you had um, the S&P was down quite a bit. If you bought on the 9th, however, on that Friday, bought the S&P 500 would be up 6%. But if you bought Berkshire Hathaway since the, on that day, uh, you'd be up 12% right now uh, based on the positive results that they put up. Uh, for the quarter, um, uh, and as announced, and in, in the guidance that they gave, and the commentary, of course, it is one of the, the one of the great joys of these financial markets is that commentary yeah. from Warren Buffett. So, yep. uh, from the from the very lows, there a uh, big move, uh, even from the close on the ninth, uh, an eight percent move in that uh, in shares of, of Berkshire Hathaway. So Berkshire Hathaway, uh, one of the stories, uh, one of the best read stories on the, on the Bloomberg Terminal today is, is a look at those results and shares of Berkshire Hathaway today, up four percent. And Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, uh, he's been out. You know, making some interviews, giving some interviews following that investor letter over the weekend. And he apparently made some comments to a competitor saying um, he was, quote, staggered by the size of the charge. A competitor charge. of Warren Buffett? No, no, no. A, st- a competitor of ours. Oh. Um, Warren Buffett said, there's Her. nobody who can compete with Warren Buffett. I'm just thinking. Uh, anyway, Warren Buffett said he was, quote, staggered by the size of the charge General Electric took earlier this year tied to an old insurance portfolio. Having said that, check out shares of GE. At their low today, they were down, Corey, 3.7 percent at their high and they're just off their highs now they're up as much as 1.3 percent right now the stock is up 1.1 percent up 16 cents to 14 dollars 65 cents a share earlier though shares of ge um, were plunging um, as investors spurned ceo john flannery's latest charm offensive as we write here at bloomberg the ceo's letter to shareholders and a board overhaul announced on monday failed to soothe concerns about looming liabilities on ge's balance sheet which the company detailed in its annual report after markets closed on Friday, in its uh, latest potential hurdle, GE warning its risks it risks new penalties as the U.S. Department of Justice continues an investigation of the company's defunct subprime mortgage lender. So, some.
some investigations there. Anyway, right now shares of GE up 1.1%. What did your daughter drink this morning before she went to school? Apple cider. Organic apple cider. She did not have milk. Uh, no, but that's her other drink of choice. Because well, uh, we uh, she's one of many who didn't have milk this morning, though. Uh, I had milk last night. Milk. Uh, U.S. dairy milk. consumption is uh, in a long-term decline here, and uh, it has uh, hurt, of course, the largest U.S. dairy company, which the name of which is Dean Foods. Dean Foods shares down 13 percent on the day to close at 881. Um, uh, as a result of this, um, a big volume, sales volume down six percent. Uh, they're going to try to cut $150 million in expenses over the course of the next two years, uh, including consolidation of manufacturing capacity and creation of a leaner organization structure, milk puns. They said leaner, not me. But yep. uh, uh, the decline in, in the consumption of milk uh, is really hurting uh, a lot of businesses, uh, not least of which uh, Dean Foods. And Dean Foods shares, as I, again, as I mentioned, down 30, 13% today. Volume through the roof stock is now at a 52-week low. It was as high as in, in April of last year. Shares are trading at $20, above $20. Now it's just above 8 2% lactose-free organic. That's It was down more than 2%. Choice. That's milk. what I should have led with. I should have said, shares of Dean Foods are down more than 2%. <laughs> lactose-free organic. All right, let's get to the volatility index report, the VIX. It is down 3.4%. The VIX closing uh, today at 15.91. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now. Look at his stock of the day. And that would be Chatham Lodging Trust. This is a company that owns hotels in a number of chains, Courtyard, Hilton, Residence Inn. There are plenty more where those three came from. Uh, they operate in the eastern half of the U.S., from Massachusetts to Texas. Their shares have been publicly traded since 2010. The ticker is CLDT. Chatham went public at $20 a share, plunged as much as 56% within its first 18 months of trading. While the stock later rebounded, it struggled to stay above its initial price. And today, Chatham Lodging fell back below it. Uh, thanks to uh, disappointment with its latest results and outlook. In the fourth quarter, a cash flow gauge known as funds from operations, key for real estate investment trusts, trailed the average analyst estimate in the Bloomberg survey. The miss was the first in six quarters. The company's forecast for this year's revenue, earnings, and cash flow all came up short of projections as well. All this led to the biggest one-day drop in Chatham's shares since November 2011. They fell 8.4% on the day. What's that ticker? CLDT. CLDT. And that cash flow from operations uh, uh, isn't free cash flow, but it's, it's, it's how well the business is thrown off cash. You can mess with it for one quarter, but over the long term, you certainly can't. Absolutely. Dave, it's a basis for figuring out dividend payments, among other things. Dave, great stuff. Dave Wilson, as always, our stock editor, keep an eye on some stocks we might have missed. Otherwise, grateful for that. You listen to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.